Welcome to another episode of the Replant Bootcamp Podcast, the Boots on the Ground podcast for replanters by replanters with your host, Bob Bickford and Jimbo Stewart. Here in the trenches with you doing the gritty and glorious work of replanting dying churches. This podcast is sponsored by 180 Digital, the church website and branding partner you need to help move your church forward. All right, welcome to another quarantined episode of the Replant Boot Camp as we're trying to figure out how to survive in this post-apocalyptic pandemic world that we find ourselves in. Hey, the importance of having good structures and good discipleship, I'm not going to take credit for remembering this. I saw it on Twitter, but a great book that I read a long time oh, yeah. ago, Trellis and the Vine. Did you see the post that pointed out the, the question to ask in the end of the book? No. So listen to this. On page 165 of Trellis and the Vine, as we write, the first worrying signs of a swine flu pandemic are making headlines around the world. Imagine mm-hmm that the pandemic swept through your part of the world and that all public assemblies of more than three people were banned by the government for reasons of public health and safety. And let's say that due to some catastrophic combination of local circumstances, this ban had to remain in place for 18 months. How would your congregation of 120 members continue to function with no regular church gatherings of any kind and no home groups except for groups of three? That's amazing. That, so we took our elders through that book, and I guess we skipped that question. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a great question that needs to be asked right now, and they emphasize the importance of discipleship and having good systems to do that. And speaking of systems, I've got another book recommendation I want to give, Bob, that has been good for me, Predictable Success. I have my uh, copy right here, Jimbo. Right yeah, there. so this is a different kind of book. Especially at first glance, it seems to be a business book, which I know some guys are going to uh, immediately tune out. Hold on, pause. Don't don't tune out just yet. Why yes. should we care about a peeringly business book like Predictable Success in Replanting? Well, man, I think a couple of things is all truth is God's truth. In particular, one of the things that, that we've come to discover about Les McEwen as an author is he's a believer and he was an elder at a church, at a church start. And so if you had this guy in your church and he was a business consultant and a best-selling author, you might want to sit down with him and ask him about your leadership and your organization. And you probably wouldn't kick him out of the room because he that was his you know profession, right? You wouldn't if you didn't have a Bible verse with every point, you probably wouldn't kick him out of the room because he's in your church and you listen to him. So in the same way, I think replanters, this is an important work for us to think about uh, in particular because he talks about this life cycle, Jimbo, that's that's super consistent with some other life cycles we've seen for decades within the church. So so in your perspective, how does the, the life cycle that Les talks about, how does it interface with the life cycle that you and I have seen uh, used for decades? Yeah, I'll be honest. I remember seeing that life cycle in seminary, the bell curve, and it was informative. You have the quadrants and it was informative and understanding that everything has a life cycle. But this kind of takes, imagine if that bell curve is an old black and white tube TV with the wood console box in your house. This is like taking it to 4K HD. There you go. And he adds four tension points that bring it to a total of seven stages, essentially. Uh, And so we'll post some information about all this on the show notes. And so essentially, you you think in the same way of the old one of the quadrants, right? And so think left side, right side. The left side is kind of what he would call, Les would call the growth side. The right side is the decline side. And he just has some really incredible insights 
in those that every every organization has to go through those tension points and that they don't mean something has gone wrong as much as they even mean that you're you're just going through like part of life. And so you start out with early struggle. So any church plant or even really any replant is starting at an early struggle. Eventually, as that starts to work, you get into fun that goes into whitewater and then predictable success. And then on the decline side, you step into treadmill and the big rut and death route. Now we'll get more information on that in a minute, but understanding that Les has just some incredibly valuable insight about those stages that I think churches ought to pay attention to. And one of the things I like about this, my favorite kind of business book or books like these, leadership books, are not ones that are people thinking theoretically or giving you their opinion or their strategy, but they're giving you their observations or research right? Like I love, like, you know, that I love the book Grit by Angela Duckworth. It's based off of research. Uh, So, so it's validated by more than just Angela Duckworth, right? And this same way, Les has been a part of like over 40 business startups and then one church startup in Ireland with his brother-in-law. And he was an elder at that church for, I think he said like 13 years or something like that. And so he's a boots on the ground guy. He's just always kind of been someone who observes and takes note. And this, this is a result of a long, long time of observing and just understanding how organizations operate. I think this is an incredibly valuable resource. I'd recommend the other thing that everybody needs to do is go to synergistquiz.com. There's a free, doesn't cost you anything, leadership style survey that plays into the different stages uh, and how that works. And uh, one of the things he talked about is the leadership styles of visionary, operator, processor, and synergist. That's some of the best stuff in the whole time I thought was. It is gold. He gives you a lot of free options on his website to further explore what those leadership styles mean and how to think within those things. There are paid versions you can do uh, and things like that, but he offers really a lot of this stuff for free. Uh, And so you can get a lot of really great insight for free. I'll tell you just a quick application point. What we've been doing at our church is I had, Uh, around 40 of our volunteer leaders all go and take that free survey for me. And I put it all on a spreadsheet and I had, I hosted a big leadership gathering where I talked through predictable success life cycle and what this means. And what I told our church is, listen, don't, don't be thrown off by the idea of this being a business book. This is really just how organizations work and understanding that visionary operator processor synergist. This is really Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, the, especially that verse 16, where each part plays its role properly. It builds the church up in love. It's Romans 12. It's 1 Corinthians 12. It's the body of Christ at work. And so I think when you look at it in that way, there's some really incredible insight in this. And I can't wait to hear what Les has to say. Awesome. Let's get to it. Absolutely. Let's do it. But it's my understanding you have some church leadership experience yourself. Yeah. Um, I was uh, one of the founding elders of a church that became Christian Fellowship Church in Belfast in Ireland. Uh, My then brother-in-law, Paul Reed, went on to become quite well known here in the U.S. He started to travel and speak a lot out here. But uh, yeah, I had 12 fascinating years uh, doing all of that. And at the time I was doing that, it's a long time ago, Jim Ross, you know, (laughs) probably just just before the Civil War. Um, (laughs) I was just beginning to get you know, the notion of what would become predictable success. I was in, you know, in my day job, I was a serial entrepreneur at that point. And so it's not surprising to me that whenever 
somebody pointed out to me, this was after I published the book, mind you, that they were using it within a church context. Of course, I thought, you know, that's a dumb thing for me not to have spotted it, which is that the patterns that the book talks about, model talks about, really relate to any organization at all of two or more people who are trying to achieve common goals. And churches are exactly that. Yeah. Would you do us a favor and just give us a really brief kind of introduction to what are the new insights that your your model give versus the bell curve, uh, especially those tension points? I can only speak for the model. I'm not going to suggest that I've got perfect perception uh, about organizational growth. All that I've done is recognize what happens in every organization and codified it and put some vocabulary around it. And I believe where it's been very helpful for folks is that it shows a seamlessness in how organizations grow and why they grow. In other words, you transition from one stage to another. Now, some of the transitions, like the transition from fun into whitewater, they hit you. You know, you're pretty aware of them. But most of them, you, you recognize them in the rearview mirror. You're look, looking around and saying, well, wait a minute, this isn't what it was before. I'm in the middle of something here and I don't, what just went wrong? And the immediate recognition that people get when they read the book or they hear me speak or I consult a coach with them is, oh, you mean this is normal? This happened, this, all, this happens to every organization. And that's a great, great thing to know and recognize that you just didn't become stupid over the last six months, you know? Uh, things just shifted and they changed. Now, it doesn't make it easier. You're still going to battle with the various issues that it brings it up. But once you recognize that, you know, if, you're, if your church has hit white water, that, like I say, it's not that you became stupid. It's that that's a natural stage. And they say, okay, now I can, I can work with this. Or if you're, you're sitting around and you're thinking, I don't get it. I mean, we used to be so vibrant and we used to be able to do things on a dime and now everything takes forever and we've lost our luster and our sparkle. When you see that you're in treadmill, that it's a stage of development, well, it actually takes a bit of guilt off to start with. And then secondly, of course, in the more detailed uh, aspects of the model, it starts to give you tools to deal with it. So I think that's where it's been very helpful for people. Where the problems begin to happen, I think, a lot is where a church which in and of itself is, could put it anywhere, let's say unpredictable success, does start something new, particularly if it's a geographical new start, and then try to make that campus operate the same way they are mm. with all of the hard-won systems and processes that they've put in place. What you're doing is strangling the opportunity for that to grow. If you really want new things to grow, allow them to mimic as much as possible the natural organic model. So starting an early struggle, make sure you've got a visionary who's there, who owns that vision. Let them choose their own operators and don't put processors in there and don't push process on top of them. And that's really, really difficult because, you know, many church leaders have got to predictable success through a lot of grief and pain ought to get there. And they've seen these systems and processes and the power that it can bring with it. They've also spent probably a few years insisting that we've got to do this. We've got to stick to the way we've codified this. That's We've discovered that it works, so let's do that. And it feels very hard to say that this new fledgling thing, no, just go do your thing. And when you need some systems and processes, then give us a call and we'll help. That's a tough thing to do, but it's what you've got to do. I want to talk specifically about treadmill with churches for a moment. There are a couple of insights uh, that I would love to hear your 
your perspective on or expound upon. And treadmill, one of the things I've heard you say is that you can't, once you leave treadmill, you can't self-diagnose anymore. The other thing I've heard you say is a lot of times during treadmill, visionaries and operators will, will leave the organization if you stay in treadmill too long and eventually maybe even processors. And then the last thing, and all these are kind of related, is yesterday in the webinar that I was in, you said most nonprofits in treadmill are being led by synergists. And so just kind of treadmill specifically because we focus primarily on declining churches. And so as churches are entering into that decline, those are the three big insights that have really stuck out to me. I'd love to hear you expound a little further on those. Uh, let me do that. But just for our listeners sake, let me, let me take a real just quick 45 second uh, romp through the whole life cycle so that when I talk about treadmill, we're, we've got it in context a little bit. Yeah. So the, the natural life cycle that every organization goes through, as you said, it's a bell curve shape. There are seven stages. There are three growth stages, the peak stage, and then three decline stages. First stage, early struggle, just trying to get off the ground, trying to get going. 80% failure rate in all organizations that try to start something. One in five make it through to the first stage of growth, which I call fun because it's fun. And that's what most people believe is the natural stage that they were meant to be in. And that's, they think that's it. And then they get surprised because they hit that stage we referred to a little earlier called whitewater. And whitewater is really caused by the complexities that develop as you grow. As you're successful over time, you get bigger and more complex. And there is a stage, whitewater, where you've got to sit down and say, okay, I've got a choice here. We can either go back to fun, but cap our growth, but do without systems and processes, more or less. You know, we need enough to keep us out of jail, but uh, we'll just sit, stay young, hip, groovy. Um, and mom and pop businesses are an obvious example of fun organizations. And, you know, there, there are many missions, not necessarily churches, but there are many missions out there who have decided to say, fun, we're going to do this thing here in a small and good way. And that's, that's great. But if you really want to scale, you've got to push through whitewater. You get to the peak stage by putting some systems and processes in place. You reach the stage I call predictable success. You've got a, a, the perfect balance there between innovation, creativity on the one hand and standardization, codification on the other. Do the right stuff. You can stay in predictable success as long as you want. But most of us, once we've done something that was good for us, in this case, putting in systems and processes, we overdo it. And then that pushes you into the first of the decline stages, which we're just going to talk about in a moment or two, called treadmill. And treadmill is just that. It sort of feels like eh, it's all a bit samey. You know, there's not, you know, it was, we got a little slow. It, it, we've lost a little bit of luster. And that's a sort of natural thing to happen. And if you, you know, lift your foot off this over-systematization, over-processing, you come back into predictable success. But if you don't do that, You'll eventually slide into the last but one stage, which I call the big rut, um, which is more of the same in terms of treadmill, but the difference is we've lost our power to self-diagnose. Not only that, we actually like it like this, it's sort of like a little comfort zone that we can nestle down into, very little change, everything status quo ante. And a lot of people you know, like it. So you can hang around in the big rut for a long time, but what you're doing is slowly sliding into irrelevance. And then there comes the stage I call death rattle, which it sort of looks like, oh, there's something going on here. But the something that's going on is we're just putting this thing to bed. It's finishing off. So that's the context that, we, you know, your questions about treadmill come in. And yes, the, the, the key thing to recognize when you hit treadmill, as I mentioned earlier, is that it's a natural stage, but it's a 
dangerous stage because it's the last stage, the, the fifth stage and the last of the seven where you've got really the ability to do anything about it. Because at that point, if you can have a challenge function, if people can begin to push back, you can you know change the dial. You can dial back in systems and processes. You can move back into predictable success. Once you've got into the big rut, the definition of being in the big rut is when the visionaries in the organization have left. They typically, soon afterwards, what I call in our model, the operators, the people who just, you know, walk around knocking down breeze block walls to get things done, they'll go because they need visionaries to get marching orders. And in the for-profit world, we're typically left with the two other styles, which are the processors, who are the bean counters running. And think about, you know, any massive uh, bureaucratic organization all run by bean counters. And the synergists who are keeping everybody happy in, you know, our little comfortable world. In the not-for-profit world, not just in the church world, but in cause-based organizations, the same combo, but it's usually the synergists that are, they're the ones that are happy in the big rut, because aren't we all happy? Yes, we are. And so they sort of tend to lead it a little bit more. So you can have a very lovely time in the big rut. You know, in the for-profit world, I, I think, for example, uh, sorry to call people out, but I think Microsoft has been in the big rut for about five or six years now towards the back end of the Steve Ballmer era. A lot of people very happy in there. You know, they're, they're enjoying it. I've got a couple of clients that are in the big rut and the people love it. I've worked with Harvard for a long time, been in the big rut for almost 100 years. And it's a lovely place to work. You know, really, really nice. But they're slowly sliding into irrelevance. So you really got to, to watch that. And, and the one twist that I'd put on this from the church perspective is that there's one thing that happens more often in the church than happens in the for-profit world. In the for-profit world, what usually happens is the visionary will leave in treadmill because he or she is not getting listened to and they just get frustrated. And they've got, because they're visionaries, they can go start something else up. They've got that, that sort of gene in them. And they've got that get up and go. So they're just, okay, I'm out of here. I'm going to go start something else. What often happens in the church world is the visionary actually sticks around until they retire and something that churches are really bad at is succession planning. And the leadership gets handed over, you know, let's be honest, often just to the eldest male family member or, you know, another pastor that's been there for quite some time without thought to what's this going to do for the vision in the church. And so the church falls into the big rut because the visionary founding pastor retires or, or, you know, leaves or whatever, uh, rather than them deciding to go because it looks like the church is going into the uh, big rut. It's the reverse dynamic. I think it's important in the world of replanting to think through how important it is to identify that treadmill before you really get into that big rut. And then once you get into that big rut, this is really where the replanting comes in and that big rut or that death rattle. And it's often, unfortunately, not until the death rattle, which what we've found is that death rattle is often, uh, hey, we're not sure how we can pay the electric bill next month. and. So now we're ready to make some changes and we're ready to, to do something because we don't know how to pay the bills, which in the church world ought not to be the motivation for what we do. And so really what we end up doing with outside, bringing in some visionaries, some operators from either a partner church or a replant team, we're kind of almost starting over at early struggle with a visionary leader now. Well, that, that, that's, you know, in terms of what you're doing, 
and mapping it to the model, you've, you've instinctively identified the only thing that you can do with something that's either in the big rut or death rattle, which is you've got to essentially, res- in a very uh, apt, appropriate metaphor here, you've got, it's got to be resurrected back into something in early struggle. And you, you know, you've really got to start the loop back over again. You know, in the for-profit world, it's easier to, to uh, perhaps see this. I get asked all the time, by people, you know, I think this organization over here uh, uh, is in the big rut, but I, you know, there's somebody who would want, want to buy it and acquire it. Do you think I should do that, Les? Because you've always said you can't recover, so why would I buy this if I can't get it back to predictable success? And I tell them all the time, the only, the only way this will work is if, if you completely decapitate, forgive the, the very inapt metaphor here, if you completely decapitate management, you've got to take everybody out. They've all got to go, and you've got to start again, and, you're a, and you've got to Gird yourself because you're essentially going to start again an early struggle and you're going to go back up the curve. Uh, so you're, you're instinctively doing the right thing. That's one of the things you mentioned was that when an organization is in treadmill, a lot of the visionaries leave and they go start something new. But yet you also mentioned previously that, that there are some people who inquire about taking a business or an organization that is in the late stages of the big rat or the death rattle. And they're, they're those folks who go in and restart it and right. revive it and resuscitate it. And so in our field, we look for individuals who have that gift and that mix and those personality traits that, that draw them to things that are broken or not working, and they are able to, to rally them and bring them back to health. What are some of the characteristics that you see that are important for someone who feels called to take a church or business or something that's just that's about to, to die and bring it back to life? Uh, the, the key uh, differentiator in the for-profit world and the church world in the very specific example you're talking about, you know, finding somebody who will take something that's not working and help fix it, is in the for-profit world, the individuals who do that are typically either VOs or VPs, visionary operators, who just take this thing, you know, neutron vomit with whatever, you know, scalpel or axe or club that, need, you know, just will beat it into the shape that it needs to be to, to succeed again. Um, <laughs> Or their VPs, which is my profile, and that's a that's a sort of more of a consultant mindset. Somebody who'll see this and see, ah, I, I can see that I could do something with this. This is sort of you know, there's much more of a mercenary uh, mentality to that whole thing going on in the church world. The people that we're talking about are often either VSs or OSs, visionary synergists or operator synergists. The only reason that I've mentioned that is that what that sometimes means is that they can find it hard to make the real difficult people decisions that have to be made. Synergists find it hard, you know, to, for example, to do layoffs in the for-profit world. And, you know, shifting a church as radically as, as you guys are doing is, has got a mammoth cultural impact. You know, people get shaken, they get uprooted, they get scared. And if your synergy, if your synergist style is too high, it can prevent you from leading with the strength that you need to lead to get the, because don't forget in the early struggle, we need a lot of momentum, right? We've, got to, we've now got to break the gravitational pull. We've got to get some momentum going. I'm not saying that it shouldn't be that way. You know, visionary synergists, operator synergists are great people and they'll do a great job. But sometimes if I'm coaching, the hard discussions that I have to have with uh, leaders in the, the whole of the for, cause-based, cause uh, not-for-profit world, 
is around whether or not they're prepared to do the truly difficult people stuff. You did such a great job on the webinar yesterday. It was really valuable information. Specifically, if you could just give us a brief look at that downwind, the headwind that's going to push you downhill and, uh, and what, what that means for on either side of that. So in our context with replanting, that would either mean the church that needs to be replanted and they're in decline and they're going to feel that headwind or the guy who started to replant a church, we're back in early struggle, fun early white water, and what, what does that headwind mean, mean for that guy? Yeah, so the overall concept that, that um, you're referring to, James, is that if we think of that bell curve uh, the, of the predictable success life cycle, uh, any type of an economic uh, downturn, uh, there are other causes uh, of this effect, but the one that we're concerned with in the current climate is an economic downturn, which is certainly what we're facing, uh, is, is like a headwind. It's like a wind pushing down on right on the top, on the apex of that upturned bell curve. And the impact of that is that whatever side of the uh, curve you happen to be on at the point where the economic headwinds hits, I mean, if you're on the left growth side, you will get pushed down, further down that uh, side of the bell curve. If you're on the right side, which is the decline side with treadmill, big rut, death rattle, you'll get pushed further down that way. So think of it as a headwind's pushing you backwards. The, there's a big difference in those two things happening. If you're being pushed backwards on the growth side, you not only can, but you should go with that flow. Um, I liken it to being like bamboo in the wind. You know, it flexes in the wind and doesn't snap. And you've got to do that. And I'm not saying you give up the ghost. It's just, you know, go with it, retreat a little bit, get a little smaller, stop doing some things that you did before, retrench a little bit. And the reason why that's good and okay is that, you're moving back into territory that you've been in before, so it'll be familiar territory. You can take a breath, regroup, and get back uh, up again. So if you, before this all hit, uh, are leading a church that was, that was on the growth side of the curve, then you want to just take that, roll with it a little bit, go back a few steps, so to speak, see this thing out, and then you can begin to grow again. There's an exception which is that if you only just started something very, very recently, you may want to think very seriously about whether you want to press pause on that completely and just wait for this to blow over and then come back, start it up again, if that's doable. There's a big difference on the other side of the curve, though. If you're on the decline stage, even a little, if you're just an early treadmill, this headwind will try to kill you because what it will do is it will try to push you down towards the big rut, which we've already identified as being an area where you will never recover from. It's quicksand because you will lose your ability to self-diagnose. So if you're on the decline stage, you have got to fiercely fight this thing. Now, what does that actually mean in practice? It means you've got to relearn how to innovate. And, I, you know, let's just pick a really clear, obvious example that's as bright as Rudolph's nose at the moment. If you're one of those older, more established churches that has been saying all along that online worship is, you know, insert negative phrase here, uh, you better rethink that. Very, very quickly, or you're going to rocket down that decline curve over the next period of time. And I, I, I want to make a little aside, uh, I know we're a little tight for time, but this is an important thing. 
I've been through seven recessions, you know, as I said, I, I started this all sometime just before the Civil War, and I've seen a lot. So as an old white guy who's seen a lot, I, I get into preachy mode. One thing I'll say is fundamentally different, I think, in what I'm seeing at the moment is it's the depth of permanent behavioral change that this is going to wreak. All of the previous recessions have made some behavioral change, changed how we did things. This is going to fundamentally change so much of what we do. So, for example, we're doing this by Zoom. Uh, the degree that this trend was already underway, but the degree to which this will be the default method of communicating rather than me getting on an airplane and coming to see you is going to be accelerated hugely. And that's going to repeat itself in every walk of life, including how people worship. So anyway, to get back to our point, if you're on the, if you were, your church was on the decline stage just before this hit, you've got to innovate. You've got to, you've got to um, embrace visionaries. You've got to, don't have one, you've got to find one. You've got one or two, you've got to, you know, really ask for their uh, input at very senior level because uh, you've got to fight this. You must not double down on what we did before because that will, in the end, it will kill you. It'll give you a lot of work. So you're going to be busy in the next couple of years uh, because of this very dynamic. Yeah, I feel like this conversation is incredibly important right now of replanting because of the current context. With that headwind coming, so many churches are going to find themselves in a position where uh, maybe they wouldn't have considered being replanted by another church but now they're going to have to maybe be a little more open to those considerations as a possibility. Right. If you've got the time, uh, I had one last thing I wanted you to speak to. I think the visionary operator processor synergist kind of teamwork that you have talked about enterprise commitment. I would rephrase for our purpose, the kingdom commitment, right? We have to do what's good for the kingdom over what's good for me. Um, right. As a pastor, I read the visionary operator processor synergist really is in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, that God has given the gifts of leaders to the church to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. And then in verse 16, it says, when each part plays its role properly, the church will build itself up in love. And what I see is you, like you said, you, you this is not stuff you came up with. This is stuff you have observed over over many years back since before the Civil War. And, and so you uh, have observed these realities that are really scriptural, biblical ideas. I would just love for you to speak to the importance of building lay ministry teams that are well balanced in a replant because we're not going to be able to afford staff. It's going to be recruiting lay leaders. But as we recruit those lay leaders, what is the importance of identifying their role and making sure that they're playing their role properly? Great question, by the way. There's a specific choreography for the development of a leadership team within a church. And it's the same with any organization. And I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think about either business or not business. Just think of all of the model as being about organizational growth. And the church is many things. One of the things it is is an organization. But the choreography that works is you start with the visionary, and that person has the vision. And so much of the uh, success of what you will do is, as you know, much better than I do, is finding that person who has the vision, prepared to take a plant, a replant and make it happen. For the ideal success profile, ideally you want that person to be able to select a few people who will become what is typically called their leadership team. I want to come back to the name for it in a moment or two. 
Uh, so they're going to be working with a lot of folks. They're going to be the congregation themselves. They're going to be volunteers. But you're going to have a few people who will become the sort of inner circle, if you want to call it that. Those people should be operators for the first few years because that's essentially what you need. You need a visionary, central, orchestrating a group of operators. And I want to say something that I say often in this context for all sorts of cause-based organizations that's going to sound a little uh, patronizing uh, or insulting, and I don't mean it to be, it just is the way it is. That is typically not a leadership team. It's a group of enablers who are there to enable the vision. The visionary very much is the personification of the vision, and the operators see it, and they uh, accede to it, and they're excited about it. But really what they want to do is make that happen. They're water carriers. And that's how you grow fast and early. Then you begin to get towards that whitewater stage where things are becoming complex. At that point, it's one of the transitions for the visionary leader. You do get to the point then where you begin to need an actual leadership team, people who are in the strategic decision-making aspects of continued growth, just because it's become more complex. At that point, not all of the operator water carriers will have the leadership ability to be part of the scene, what is now truthfully, genuinely for the first time, the senior leadership team. And that's a really tough transition in the church. Really tough. It's hard in a for-profit world where, you know, I was just talking to a guy earlier uh, today and, you know, he's been running his business for, I think, 13, 14 years now. He's got three or four people working with him who have been with him since day one. And the business has outgrown them. They don't have the ability to lead the complexities that are involved. And yet, as he's dealing with that, in every case, something happens that I see happening all the time, which is they, 99 times out of 100, recognize that whenever you have an honest discussion about it. And they say, you know, you're right. I just want to go back to stacking the chairs and unstacking the chairs and, you know, monitoring maybe the children's area or whatever. I, it's not for me. So you begin to develop this team. At that point, you, at the same time, sort of coincidentally, is when we need our processors to come in because we're getting complex, we need processors. And a very important dynamic happens typically for the first time, which is that we begin to get conflict in perception as to what the overall best things are to do to realize either the enterprise commitment, the kingdom commitment, uh, very much like the way that you positioned that. In, o- in other words, visionaries and operators get along together and can finish each other's sentences. You put the processor in the mix, it's not their fault, but things start to get garbled and misperceived. And visionaries particularly find processors as glass half-empty half pessimists. Um, most <laughs> processors think visionaries are full of you know, you know what, how I would finish that sentence, hyperbole. Uh, and so a bit of a conflict emerges. And in order for that team to be cohesive, a fourth learn style has to be uh, activated. And it is a learn style. And the visionaries, the operators, the processors can learn to move into this style. I call it the synergist style. There are some people who are just natural synergists, but it's not enough just to have an out-and-out visionary, an out operator, an out processor, and then a synergist trying to you know, hold the ring, everybody's got to learn to operate in synergist mode, which is to put the interests of the enterprise, the interests of the kingdom ahead of my own 
desires to scratch my visionary itch, my operator itch, my processor itch. And so if you want to get to this apex, this top of the bell curve stage, which I call predictable success, if you want to stay in fun, if you want to have a, a sort of a boutique, narrowly focused, smaller um, mission with an understanding that it's capped, uh, then all you need are visionaries and operators. A few little mini P's just to keep you out of jail, fill in your forms, make sure that you're right side of regulations and stuff like that. But not at leadership level, you just need visionaries and operators. But if you want to scale, you've got to have visionaries, operators, processors, which means you've got to learn how to operate in the synergist mode as well, or you'll kill each other. So we end up with this VOPS team model. And that's essential in predictable success. That right there is a lot of gold for us. And particularly, I think what Les described for us, it reminds me not only of church planting, but replanting and established churches and just the dynamics and the giftings uh, that are available. That's some great insight. So thankful for that. Thank you. My pleasure. Les, thanks for taking the time to meet with us today and being on the Replant Bootcamp podcast. It's been a delight to be here. Thanks. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Replant Bootcamp Podcast, a resource for replanters by replanters. If you enjoyed this episode or found it to be helpful for you and your ministry, please help us get the word out by subscribing, sharing, and leaving us a review on your favorite podcast listening platform. This podcast is sponsored by 180 Digital. 180 Digital is a team of design, development, and marketing experts that love working with churches big and small. Check out 180.church, O-N-E-E-I-G-H-T-Y.church to learn more about how 180 can help your church move forward.